our Monday night lecture next Monday will be Leon Jackson from the University of South Carolina talking about uh, printers as writers from Benjamin Franklin to Walt Whitman, a topic that I find extraordinarily interesting and rather fresh. It's not, I think, one that I can recall anybody has covered in great detail. And one thinks of Ben Franklin as a printer and of Whitman as a writer and knows that Franklin was a writer and Whitman was a printer, but somehow I never thought of it as uh, the two bookends of a very interesting period of writing printers. And our lecture this evening is uh, uh, Dr. William Noel from the Walters Art Museum speaking on King David and his books. He's spoken at Rare Book School before. It's a great pleasure to have him back. Much, Terry. It's a great pleasure for me to be back. I hope that you have all had a uh, splendid day. Some of you doing dogma in style. Um, and uh, tonight, I hope you can sit back and have a look at some uh, beautiful pictures because that's the point. Um, if there is a theme to this lecture, it is that while God modeled man on himself, in the Middle Ages, man modeled himself on King David. And actually, this was as true of the Renaissance as it was of the Middle Ages. And nothing illustrates the different mentalities of these two cultural epochs better than their representations of this Old Testament figure. To the students of the Middle Ages, this is a very odd sculpture. Um, if you have the slightest inkling of the Western iconographic tradition, then this is David to you. If you have no inkling of the iconographic tradition of the um, West at all, you have no idea what this figure is. Last time I was in the um, academia, there was a man daughter, and they were looking at this figure, and the daughter said to the mother, gee, mum, what's that he's got over his shoulder? And the mother said, gee, honey, I don't know, I guess it's his pants or something. <laughs> great deal of sympathy uh, with this um, with this mother. He really does look like he's just got out of a bath. He's 17 foot tall. He's a very well-developed masculine male. And he's naked. Uh, this is not at all a um, representation of the story as it's recounted in the book of Samuel. David is the youngest of Jesse's sons. Um, he, is a, he is not yet an adolescent. Uh, he goes and he fights the Philistine Goliath, cuts off his head. There's great triumph and jubilation. Never is this relaxed posture part of the story. And what, of course, we see here is not a representation of the first book of Samuel, uh, but a representation of a Renaissance ideal, a public... Uh, a public statement, a public political statement out, that was supposed to be placed outside the um, Palazzo Vecchio in Florence and in some sense was supposed to stand for the uh, small republican city of Florence fighting uh, the great principality Milan, little guy versus big guy. 
But people see in David what they need. And the question, of course, today is how they saw him uh, in the Middle Ages. And, of course, they did see him uh, through him in the stories of the books of Samuel 1 and 2, otherwise known as the first and second book of Kings. Uh, these are the ninth and the tenth books of the Old Testament. He was the youngest of De Jesse's sons, there he is, um, who keepeth the sheep. Now he was ruddy, and with all of beautiful countenance, and goodly to look to. David was a perfectly normal human being, the son of Jesse, the younger brother, a shepherd in the Holy Land. He was a sleeper, of course, it was predestined that Jesus would be born into the house of David. But nonetheless, there was nothing special about him until one day uh, Samuel found him. And he was brought before Samuel. And there we are. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from King Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. The key to understanding David, I think, and his importance in medieval life, is to remember that while the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and while he achieved spectacular victories, and while he was a prophet and Christ's ancestor, he performed no miracles, and he was never a saint. And because he was not a saint, you never prayed to him. You prayed to superhumans to help you. You prayed to God. You prayed to the Son of God. You prayed to the Virgin who begot God, and to the saints who normally by virtue of their death could intercede on your behalf for special, for, for special requests. But because David remained human, you could use him as an example. He was on your side. When you went about your Christian life, you went about you went about wearing David's mantle, and often using David's words. Why was this the case? Because David's words were the fabric of your prayer life. Even though David's deeds are accounted in the books of Samuel, it is above all in the book of Psalms, the 19th book of the Old Testament, that is the book of David. David was a musician, and the word psalm comes from the Greek psalmos, meaning song. David, frequently accompanied by his fellow musicians, is often seen harping or playing bells in medieval books of psalms, which are called psalters. David was divinely inspired. When he played the harp before King Saul, the evil spirit left Saul. And when David died, his last words were, The Holy Spirit has spoken through me. In medieval illustrations, the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, is often seen inspiring David through his, through his ear. So here we have a rather extraordinary Holy Spirit perched on top of King David. This is from a wonderful Psalter uh, called the St. Albans Psalter, a 12th century English Psalter, possibly made for the anchoress Christina of Marquette. Um the Psalms, therefore, may have been composed by David, uh, but they also had divine authority. Uh, the Psalms were originally written in Hebrew, 
By far the most important figure in their translation for use in the Latin West was St. Jerome, who was writing at the end of the 4th century. This Psalter was made for the Emperor Lothar, son of Charlemagne, in about 840. Following a full-page portrait of the Emperor is one of David, and then St. Jerome. Now, St. Jerome was responsible for three different versions of the Psalter, one of which was translated directly from the Hebrew. This is the version that's used in the King James Bible and in most Protestant editions. However, most commonly in the Middle Ages and in the Vulgate edition, another of Jerome's version was used, called the Gallican. And this is important because sometimes I'm going to be referring to Psalms by the wrong number for you Protestants in the audience, for which I'm sorry. Um, the Psalms were the staple of medieval religious practice, its rice and its mashed potatoes. In the most influential rule of religious life in the West, that of St. Benedict of Mercia, chapter 19 lays out in detail the psalms that were to be sung during the course of the week, at the prayer hours of Matins, Lords, Prime, Terst, Sex, Known, Vespers, and Compline. The entire Psalter was recited at least once a week by medieval monks and nuns. By far the most usual division of the Psalters, from at least the 12th century onwards, however, was a division into eight that reflected the use of the Psalter in the Christian liturgy. And here I show you um, an illustration of the beginning of Psalm 68, Salve Mayfac. Save me, O Lord, make me safe, uh, which was um, Matins on Wednesday. Um, why were the Psalms, purportedly composed by King David, who reigned about 1000 BC in the Near East, and in fact compiled between about the 9th century and the 3rd century BC, so important in medieval religious observance? There are three main reasons, I think. First, the Book of Psalms is the only book of the Bible that consistently establishes a direct personal relationship between the person who recites them and his or her maker. There are direct appeals in the first person singular, whether they be of celebration, contrition, complaint, or affirmation of faith. They were, for medieval people, personal prayers as well as institutional ones, and they were often supplemented by other prayers, particularly biblical canticles such as the Canticle of Hezekiah and the Magnificat and the Lord's Prayer. Even in the later Middle Ages, when new prayers, often in vernacular languages, became extremely popular, the Psalms never lost their importance. For example, the seven penitential Psalms remained an essential component of medieval books of ours. Secondly, the Psalms are easy to understand. Latin was not the first language of medieval Christendom. People had to learn how to speak it as well as how to read it. Whether they were novices in monasteries or royalties in castles, they learned to read from the relatively easy of the Latin of the Psalms. Thirdly, although the Psalms reflect the whole range of human emotional experience, from triumph to disaster, they are not time-specific. Many central texts were only appropriate, in the, for, only appropriate for certain days in the extraordinarily elaborate Christian calendar, some of you of which are just beginning, uh, which, were, which were anniversaries for the events recounted in biblical history. The Psalms, however, do not tell stories, and they are appropriate for any time of year. There are, of course, an Old Testament text. Jesus hadn't been born yet. 
the justification for a specifically Christian interpretation of any Old Testament book ultimately relies upon St. Paul's understanding of the New Testament as the Old Testament unveiled. Taking their cue from St. Paul, church fathers such as St. Augustine and Cassiodorus found in the Psalter a book that resonated with allusion to and prophecy of the the events recounted in the Gospels. So here we are in the Stuttgart Psalter from the 9th century, and we're in Psalm 21, illustrating verses 17 to 19, and we have a crucifixion, uh, because this is the great Passion Psalm. The verses read, For many dogs have encompassed me, the counsel of the malignant have besieged me. They have dug my hands and my feet, they have numbered all my bones, and they have looked and stared upon me. They parted my garments amongst them, and upon my vesture they cast lots. The blessed man, the Baratus Weir of Psalm 1, for example, was historically King David. He wrote the Psalms. But allegorically, he was Jesus Christ. The Psalter was then the prime devotional, liturgical, liturgical and educational text of the medieval Christian world. According to Cassiodorus, the beginner in religion did not start with Genesis or with the Gospels, but with the Psalms. If the blessed man of Psalm 1 was historically King David and allegorically Jesus Christ, he was also every man or woman who recited the Psalter. As Psalm 1 says, the blessed man's will is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he shall meditate both day and night, from Matins to Compline. Illustrating the Psalter was a challenge to which the medieval mind responded really with brilliance, and the difficulty is precisely that the Psalms don't tell stories but rather describe states of mind or characterize situations and people with constant recourse to metaphor and simile. It is far easier to paint an evangelist writing a gospel or illustrate the first days of creation than it is to illustrate a psalm. Medieval artists attempted to do three things when they were articulating the nature of the psalm, when, when, when they were illustrating the psalter. One was to articulate the nature of the psalm text and then to demonstrate the old context Old Testament context of the Psalms, and then to elucidate their New Testament relevance. Okay, so to articulate the nature of the Psalm text. This is a um, fabulous manuscript uh, that is now housed in Utrecht University Library. It's called the Utrecht Psalter, uh, and it was made in around 830, and it's traditionally ascribed to the Monastery of Eightvilliers near Reims. Um, so it's a great masterpiece of the Carolingian Renaissance for those of you that were doing style earlier today. Um, and this is the illustration of Psalm 23. Um, the Lord is my shepherd, or at least it's the Lord is my shepherd in the Hebrew, but not in the, not in, not in the uh, Gallicanum, which is the version we have here, the Lord leads me here. But anyway, um, this is a psalm that you all know well. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He shall make me lie down in green pastures beside the still waters. Um, how on earth is this an illustration of that psalm? We have a temple here, a table here, a guy looking in front of the table holding a cup, somebody firing an arrow at him. 
that looks like a vague pastoral scene. <laughs> um, it does, and this is the point. Um, it's, it, it, it's, it's a visual nonsense that picks up on words of the Psalms in very interesting ways and compiles them together. And it takes this, it takes this think piece, this great expression of, of, of prayer, and turns it into a scene. So um, we do have the still waters. We have the rod and the staff that comfort the psalmist. We have an angel anointing the psalmist's head with oil. We have a table prepared in front of the psalmist against the enemies that afflict him. His cup is overflowing. Um, and he is um, beside, the, beside the still waters in green pastures, and he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Very neat. It's the illustration of a text, though, and not the illustration of an event. And this is rather important, and it means that you can have great fun when you're trying to illustrate metaphor and simile, you can really play around. Psalm 2, verse 9, reads, Thou shalt the Lord shalt rule them with a rod of iron, and break them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So here we have the Lord apparently playing golf with a kitchen pot. <laughs> but what he's actually done, what's the, what the artist has done, is he's taken them, He's taken them and the fact that they are like a potter's vessel. And then he's taken the iron rod which, with which the Lord shall rule them with a rod of iron and turned it into one fantastic picture, the visual syntax of which is really rather complicated, however naive the image might seem, to create a visual image that has nothing and yet everything to do with the text. Very, very smart. And this is actually the origin of an awful lot of marginal illustrations that one gets in 13th century sultas and private devotional prayer books, where on the one hand they're illustrating the text, and on the other hand they're creating a visual scene that runs completely counter to it, or at least in parallel to it. Um, here is a... Uh, Here's one that's actually in the Walters collection. I'm sorry for the poverty of this slide, but there's a little guy masturbating. Maybe we turned it upside down because he's upside down in the in the page. There's a little guy masturbating here next to verse six. Now verse six says, Psalm six, verse six says, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed to swim. I water my couch with tears. <laughs> so, here is this guy committing the sin of Omen, which is actually rather appropriate because Psalm 6 is the first penitential psalm. Um, but picking up on the words of the psalms and turning them into something truly, truly different and extraordinary, but really concentrating on, on the words. The Old Testament context of the psalms they can concentrate on. Uh, this is a lovely little sorter, also in the, in the waters. Um, and here we have the illustration of Psalm 26. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I And we have Samuel anointing uh, David. Um, can we get the focus a bit better on the right? Uh, 
So we've articulated the nature of the psalm text, we're putting them into a historical context, but we can also demonstrate, and artists do demonstrate, uh, their New Testament relevance. From the same, from the same book of Psalms here, which as you can see is a rock, it's very small, it's a fabulous book, this. Um, Psalm 97, Cantate Dominum Canticum Novum, sing unto the Lord a new song. Uh, but we don't find David singing. Here we have three clerics singing from a choir book. And we should understand these figures certainly as illustrating the first words of the psalm, because they're singing. However, it is not the psalms that they are singing in the picture. The picture is far too big to be a psalter. They're probably performing in a mass, and it is a gradual that they're singing from, the new song being interpreted by the church fathers as a reference to the coming of Christ and his sacrifice for man. Possibly this psalter was made for Blanche of Brittany, who died in 1322, and who was a cousin of the King of France, and it might have been made for her private devotions. Here is, a, here is a book ostensibly with a function, but is this actually how it was used? Let's take another royal example. Order Vitalis discovers, discusses a book about Queen Emma, who was the wife of King Ethelred the Unready, who had a large sorter decorated with various pictures, which she gave to her brother Robert, the Archbishop of Rouen. The Archbishop's son, William, carried it off from his father's chamber and gave it to his wife, Harwis, whom he sought to please in all things. Through the offices of Robert de Grand Mesnil, Harwis' son by her first husband, the community of Santa Vrue acquired the volume shortly after 1050. In Roderick's day, it was still being used almost daily by the choir of the community as they chanted the psalms. While Queen Emma might have used her psalter in her private devotions, the Archbishop's son seems to have used it as a love token, and the monks of Rural used it, uh, Santa Rural used it in the office. Psalters were used in many different contexts, their textual apparatus and their illustrations notwithstanding. For example, it is recorded in the miracles of Peter the Venerable that a monk of exemplary piety always carried a glossed psalter so as to study the glosses while chanting the psalms. If he came to a phrase that he did not understand, his eyes would at once turn to the glosses. And indeed, plain song was slow enough at this period to allow meditation on words as they were chanted. It is nonetheless true that quite independently of the functions that they were supposed to have performed, that by comparing sources of different periods, we can see changes in the interpretation of David's psalms. So I have chosen to compare three books, the function of which I have no clear idea. Um, this is the, the uh, Utrecht Psalter again, a 9th century manuscript, and the illustration here is to Psalm 3, and here is the Lord, as you can hope possibly see, I don't know that you can see, uh, in the middle, and he is striking the uh, potter's vessel with a rod of iron in the middle. And this is conventionally understood as a copy of the same manuscript, and here is the Lord again. Uh, it's not a copy at all. Um, this is uh, one version of Jerome's text, uh, the Gallicanum, written out in rustic capitals in three columns. Uh, in here, we actually have five different...
different versions of the Psalms in the 12th century. This is made in around 1150 uh, at Christchurch Canterbury. In the main column, the Gallicanum text, which was the liturgical usage at the time. Uh, but we also have two other versions by St. Jerome, the Romanum and the Hebrew. Um, as well as that, we have an Anglo-Saxon translation of the Romanum and an Anglo-Norman translation of the Hebrew. We also have glosses, marginal and interlinear. There's an extraordinarily textual, elaborate textual apparatus here, which must have made this book extraordinarily complicated to use. It was certainly very complicated to make. Uh, here we are, we're on about page 300 of this colossal compendium right now, and we're at the Canticle of Hezekiah the King. Now, there was no Romanum of the Canticle of Hezekiah the King, so the uh, scribe wrote out a, lat a, a French version. Now, the Canticle of Hezekiah the King begins Ego Dixit, I said in the middle of my days. Um, here we have an E for Ego, for one Latin version. Here we have an I for Je dis. Here we have another Latin version that begins Ego, although it's in gold so you can't see it, but the scribe only left room for an eye for the artist to fill in. The artist got a bit pissed off about this, so he drew a scribe as an ass, with ass's ears and writing in a book. There is actually a much more famous portrait in the Edwin Salter than this of the scribe Edwin himself, but I have a feeling that this tells us more about uh, the makings of medieval manuscripts than the Edwin Salter illustration. And this is perhaps why, 50 years later, 30 years later, they did the whole thing over again in a yet another book at Canterbury Cathedral, um, and they followed the old layout word for word and line for line. I'm not sure that you can see this, but it's Prospera Bunta there, it's Prospera Bunta there, um, it's Peribit there, there, and bit there, and bit there, and it's peribit there, and bit there, and bit there. They did it word for word, absolutely the same. There are one or two changes. If you can look from all the way back here, this is the Romanum, which is the liturgical usage in Anglo-Saxon England, which is why previously it had a, uh, an Anglo-Saxon translation in it. Um, we're now 150 years after the Norman Conquest, 130 years after the Norman Conquest, and the Anglo-Saxon translation is more or less gone. On the other hand, the Anglo-Norman uh, Anglo French version uh, is actually it's a much better, it's a much better version. Um, why? What is this colossal difference between uh, the Utrecht Psalter on the one hand and the Edwin Psalter uh, on the other? Uh, this reflects the difference between 9th century scholarship and 12th century scholarship on the Psalms and the Bible. Uh, let's deal with the five versions first. Um, in the first half of the 12th century, uh, there was an increasing interest in biblical scholarship. That is, really working out which version of the Bible was actually the right one. Uh, the Cistercians in particular were concerned to create an authoritative Bible text. Stephen Harding, abbot of Cito, corrected the text of the Old Testament with the help of the Jews, whom he consulted in French, as he tells us. His second volume was finished in 1109. 
Nicholas Mandrakura was horrified to discover, while visiting a house of his order, a brother in the scriptorium copying into a good early text of the Bible all the editions that he could find in all the other exemplars, convinced that the foolish version, fullest version might be the most accurate. Um, Nicholas gently expostulated with him and formed a project, which he later carried out, to lay down the right rules for textual criticism. Uh, the student had three translations of the Psalms to choose from, the Roman, the Gallican, and the Hebraica, Jerome's translation from the Hebrew. And it is perhaps under this impulse to get the right version, or at least to see them side by side, that we have all the three versions here. This, was a very, uh, this concern was very much a monastic concern. In the cathedral schools at the same time, uh, they were increasingly concerned with theological exegesis and how to interpret the Psalms allegorically, particularly doctrine. And the Psalter and the Pauline epistles were the most glossed texts of the period because they contained the most potential doctrine and the most potential for allegorical explanation. And hence we have the glosses in the margins for uh, this text. These are basically taken from St. Augustine, Augustine and Cassiodorus and they provide instant, instant access to patristic exegesis of the main version of the, um, of the Psalms. What role do the illustrations play in this is an interesting question and how the illustrations are seen as the Psalter itself and the understanding of the Psalter undergoes profound changes. Psalm 2 begins, Quare fremorent gentes, where have the heathen raged and the people devised vain things? Uh, in the uh, Utrecht Psalter, there's an image of a group of men whispering conspiratorially to each other to the left of the hill here. And these are interpreted normally as the gentes, the heathen. If you look at the Edwin Center, a scribe has actually written them down as the populi, not the gentes at all, but the people. These at least refer to the same verse, but something else goes on in the Paris illustration. This is 50 years later. And here, they're not the populi at all because they have crowns on their heads. They refer not to verse 1 of the psalm, but to verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. So when they're creating these images and commenting on their images, they're absolutely looking at the psalm text in very great detail and interpreting it in the light of their own concerns. And these can be rather extraordinary. I don't know if you can see this, build this building here. It's one of the innumerable little buildings that pepper the landscape of the Utrecht Psalter. This, one's, this one actually happens to stand on Mount Zion. Uh, and this is important because in uh, the 12th century, Mount Zion was understood as holy church. And so when the Paris artist came to paint his version of this scene, he draws a magnificent holy church standing on the top of Mount Zion, taking his cue from a 9th century manuscript. 
In these three books of science, we can see developments in religious life and interpretation of the Psalter over 400 years. In the Utrecht Psalter, one gets the sense of a subtle game where the illustrations were elaborate, witty, deliberately nonsensical plays upon an authoritative text. In the Edwin Psalter, one gets the impression that the artists rather missed the point, and the images were more understood as part of an apparatus to illuminate the ultimate Psalter that was essentially a compendium of scholarship. In Paris, on the other hand, the artists have tried to make these images real, not just a translation of the text into pictures, but rather to give the figures life as an alternative to the text and portray these figures as contemporary characters in contemporary setting. And this will become increasingly important. So far, I have concentrated on medieval books of Psalms, largely in monasteries, and now I will use the Psalter as a springboard for looking at two other books in which David features prominently, the first and second books of Samuel. And actually, it is not in these two books of the Bible that we find the events of David's life depicted, but once again in the Psalter. Psalters often had prefatory cycles of narrative imagery. Like many illustrations in the body of the Psalter, they put the Psalms in their Old Testament context and demonstrated their New Testament relevance. The first such manuscript is Cotton Tiberius C6, which was made very shortly after the Norman Conquest. And here we have an illustration from the cycle um, of Samuel illustrated, um, anointing David. Uh, a slightly later scribe has rather disconcertingly put Saul up here, um, but, but there we go. Um, the important point about this cycle is that, is, is that it's very selective. You'd simply get creation, and then the life of David, and then the life of Christ, um, in very abbreviated form. But by the 13th century, the early 13th century, something else happens. This is an illustration from a sorter in the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore, and um, it's one of what were originally 91 prefatory images to the Psalms. And it has an extraordinary scope, this sorter. It goes through all the, all the plagues of Egypt. This is the ninth plague of Egypt. Um, and it's the plague of darkness. So there we have Moses and his horns and Aaron with his rod turning Pharaoh and his minions into darkness. Um, this is Bible history for its own sake that happens to be attached to a Psalter. And it is not in Bibles that one finds this, but in Psalters, and the question is why. Part of the answer lies in the increased emphasis on the literal sense of the Bible as underpinning biblical scholarship in the later 12th century. A sound understanding of the history of the Old Testament was an essential preliminary, a preliminary to its allegorical interpretation, and the central monument of this movement uh, was the Historia Scholastica of Peter Comesto, written in about 1170. The Historia Scholastica is a history of the Bible with allegory woven into the narrative. An immensely popular book in universities, it was also translated into various vernaculars extremely quickly, and in being translated into the vernacular, it also became directly accessible to the lay nobility. The Psalter provides a locus for such material in illustrated form, because there was a precedent for Old Testament illustration prefacing the Psalter, and because 
Just as the Psalter was an indispensable primer, so a knowledge of the history of human salvation became an essential part of lay Christian education. Nonetheless, the Psalter could never be entertaining. And the Old Testament could be. There is no need for a devotional context for these Old Testament pictures. In having access to the Bible story in the vernacular, the nobility had access to it in the language of the romance and the epic, and increasingly the saint's life. There was always this possibility about the Old Testament and the book of Samuel concerning the deeds of David in particular. As much of the, as the rule of Benedict laid emphasis on the Psalms, it forbids the book, books of Samuel to be read in the evening in case they might overexcite the hearers. <laughs> this is precisely why it was so appropriate for a lay audience. I've been summarizing a lot of material here, so time to dive into a picture. The Morgan Library um, Picture Bible is on the right. It was made in France, possibly in Paris, in the middle of the 13th century, and it contains over 280 scenes from the Old Testament, most of them from the first and second book of Kings. And it is simply pictures without text, just as this little Psalter here is pictures without text. Um, but here there is no Psalter. Here these Bible pictures have been sprung from their devotional context. The text that you're seeing around the borders was actually um, added in the 14th century. And the scene you see here is one of the greatest moments in David's life. He is entering Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant. And here he is playing his harp. And there is Michal, Saul's daughter, looking down from a window. As the text relates it, David and all the house of Israel brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with joyful shouting and with the sound of trumpet. And when the Ark of the Lord was come into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looking out through a window, saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And it later goes on to say that Michal says, How glorious! was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. Well, what are the sources for this picture, other than the Bible text, which does not tell us very much? Part of the source is indeed the Psalms that David sang. The uh, only musical instrument in the Bible text that the Bible mentions is of a trumpet, but here we have the psaltery and the harp and the cymbals uh, of Psalm 150, the great psalm of thanksgiving and praise. All the musical instruments by one mentioned in that great psalm are painted in the picture. But more importantly, what are the pictorial sources? They're not previous images. They are our mode and 13th century. If we contrast this with a 9th century picture of David as Bacchic reveller, here he is in the Vivian Bible, prefacing the Psalms, David nearly uncovering himself. Uh, in the 13th century, uh, to a courtier, David cannot truly uncover himself, so he's rather genteelly dancing here. Um, The 
This is a thoroughly contemporary setting, delighting in detailed description, indulging precisely in a pictorial equivalent of hyper-detail that is the essence of a good story, detail that is found in contemporary chronicles and romances, but actually which is not found in the Bible itself. The Bible tells its tales with extraordinary brevity. The vivid, detailed pictures of the Old Testament stories were an excellent way to transform Bible stories into contemporary entertainment. And here we see King David's life in an entirely different setting from the sources that we saw earlier. Because even in entertainment, he provided models for medieval man in how he conducted his life. And rulers modeled themselves on him. They always had done. Uh, this is the sort of Charles the Bald. Uh, David is on the right, and Charles the Bald is on the left in a sort of context. If we move to the uh, 13th century, here is David. And we don't have contemporary king here, we have David, but we have David in a thoroughly 13th century trapping. So David, for example, is sitting on the cellar Carulis, the coronation chair of the kings of France, which was a golden fold stool that had uh, animal heads and claw feet. To Louis the Ninth and his courtiers, and it's been uh, suggested that this book uh, was for Louis the Ninth, obvious that this is 13th century royal iconography. And the trick here uh, in making oneself uh, a model, in, making, in turning David into a model of oneself, is not to make yourself look like David anymore, but to make David look like you. David was an exemplary warrior. He triumphed over Goliath without armor because he had God on his side. Uh, his, his feats as a warrior were precisely the things that made him valuable um, as a uh, paradigmatic ruler. Um, and they are portrayed in uh, 13th century terms. Here is a um, picture of one of the great moments of David's viciousness. Um, Saul told David that he could marry his daughter Michal if he came back with a hundred Philistine foreskins. David, being an overachiever, came back with 200 Philistine foreskins. The problem is how to make foreskins acceptable in the 13th century courtly manuscript, and the artist decided just to portray heads all the heads of all these Philistines. This, by the way, left the 14th century scribe who was trying to interpret this image with an interesting problem, and he chose to write, saw uh, David returned, David was asked to pick up the, head, the uh, 100 Philistine foreskins, and he came back with 200 heads. <laughs> I take it, then, that these are the ultimate dickheads. Um, this is relicking entertainment. <laughs> uh, David was a loyal subject to a problematic king, King Saul, and their relationship is played out over, over 20 pages of the manuscript in stunning detail. Uh, 
here's a wonderful example. Saul is trying to track down David. He gets to the cave of Engedi, and he goes into this cave to ease nature, which is sometimes translated as sleeping, but it is translated as purging his belly. So here is Saul um, having uh, a dump, and he's actually holding his cloth over his nose um, so that he can't smell himself. Um, David, while David, is, while, while Saul is easing nature, cuts off a mantle from, from part of his mantle with his sword to demonstrate I could have killed Saul, but I didn't. And here he is, after Saul is riding away, holding up that piece of mantle, saying I could have killed you. And David was also a great friend. And the, his great friend was Jonathan. And just after David managed to kill Goliath, uh, David and Jonathan met, and it came to pass that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and Jonathan stripped himself of the coat with, it, with which he was clothed, and gave it to David, and the rest of his garments, even his sword, and to his bow, and to his girdle. But David's life was a model of disaster as well as of triumph. His son Absalom revolted. Uh, disobeying his command, Joab and, this, and his soldiers killed Absalom. Uh, this left David weeping. My son Absalom, Absalom my son, would to God that I might die for thee. And David was a great sinner. David spied Bathsheba from an upper window. slept with her, engineered the death of Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, but a loyal subject in battle, and married Bathsheba. Then the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David, and Nathan told David a parable of two men, one rich with many sheep and one poor, with only a tiny little new lamb, which was to him as a daughter. A traveller came to the rich man, and the rich man, instead of taking from his own flock, took the poor man's new lamb. When David heard this story, his anger was kindled and said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. And Nathan said to David, Thou art that man. The pages of the Morgan Picture Bible tell the stories of David's greatest triumph and his most grievous sin, his entry into Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant and his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. David's role as a paradigm for behavior extended beyond his capacity as a great military leader. His personal tale in the Old Testament is complex yet profoundly human, characterized by hopes, fears, and habits that resonated clearly with medieval Christian figures. While King Louis Courtiers saw the images in this book, they saw King David as one of their own, using their chalices, their cups, their candlesticks. The biblical world that they saw pictured was the same one that they themselves experienced and the Bible pictured was more immediate to the court of King Louis, and Louis than the Bible written. And this is perhaps why artists were asked to paint these stories and not scribes to write them. All this entertainment has a serious purpose. 
David may have been inspired by the Holy Spirit, he may have been a king and a prophet, but he remained extraordinarily human, and David's life provided a mirror for so many aspects of the human condition. Above all, David was a model penitent. In his contrition after his affair with Bathsheba, David recanted, David composed Psalm 50. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy love and kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. This is David before the Lord in a book of Psalms, of around, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in a book of hours, prefacing the penitential psalm. Uh, made in around 1410. Um, and it is David before the Lord, but it is also, of course, the user of the book, wrapped up in his, all his finery, reciting the words of the psalm in the first person. And this was the great advantage of David and becoming David. Because if you were David, you could actually pray before your maker. If you, were your, your, if you were yourself, you couldn't do this. Here is Daniel Wynn, a burger from Bruges of about 1440, who is praying before his namesake, St. Daniel, um, asking, asking Daniel to pray for him. Here is somebody else praying before an image of the Virgin and Child. But whatever the theolog theological niceties of this, the truth is that it is through David, by being David, that you can have closest access, access to your maker in the language of art. And this very closeness was disconcerting to a later owner of this book of ours, who blotted out this of the creator in the top left. The Renaissance saw itself in David just as did the Middle Ages. And they are truly different worlds. Thank you very much.